Our epistle reading is Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. This passage begins and ends with fire. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, there's a little tapping in this pulpit that is driving me crazy. So I may have to switch to the, to the lapel mic if it starts up again. Um, good morning. I do have uh, one quick announcement. We've had a lot of announcements today, so I wanted to save this one to, till before the sermon. But uh, I, I sent an email out about Jane Smith's surgery that's happening Tuesday. Uh, Jane wanted to be here today, but she was not able to be here uh, due to a COVID test needing to quarantine before the surgery. So I'd like to ask Bruce after communion to come up and uh, we can gather around him and pray uh, on behalf of, uh, uh, for Bruce and Jane as they go through this difficult surgery on Tuesday. So um, we'll do that after communion. Would you pray with me? Father, how I thank you for your mercy and ask that you would uh, open our ears this morning, give us eyes to see, ears to hear your word and your will. Lord, shape our hearts by your word, speak through me. And Lord, give us clarity and give us endurance and give us hope because hope does not disappoint. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Um, so we're looking at uh, Hebrews 12. We only have, uh, this is the last sermon in Hebrews 12, and then we have maybe a couple more sermons in Hebrews, and then we're done. So uh, it's uh, been a long ride, but it's been a good ride. Um, 
Now, Hunchback of Notre Dame, that movie, um, the movie version anyway, what I've seen, there's a well-known scene where as Esmeralda is about to be executed for being accused of being a witch, um, oh, there, there's this scene where Quasimodo climbs up on the, around the church and, 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 and is doing all these acrobatics and getting ready to swing down and he swings down and saves Esmeralda. And as soon as he gets Esmeralda, he holds her and he swings back up under the church flawlessly, flawlessly. And then he yells, sanctuary, sanctuary. And because of the law of sanctuary, Esmeralda could be saved. Now, even though it's a pretty dramatized scene, flawlessly done, in medieval, in medieval Europe, fugitives and other criminals actually had the opportunity to claim sanctuary in a church, to escape the death penalty or some other punishment by seeking the sanctuary and the refuge of a church. But even modern times we see this, even though there may not be formal laws anymore in our, in our nation, not that I know, I'm not sure, but even modern times, churches have served as legal places of sanctuary or refuge. We just saw this recently in Maplewood, where an undocumented immigrant by the name of Alex Garcia from Honduras sought refuge in a church, I think it was Christ Church in Maplewood, where he lived there for about three and a half years in order to maintain his residence here in the U.S., and the government did not interfere with that. And he was able to stay, and he stayed for three and a half years, and eventually they dropped the case, and he was able to stay. But not only do we see that in modern day, these times of refuge and these, these sanctuaries go back all the way to the Old Testament, and even perhaps before. But what we see in Joshua 20 is we see God in his law provide instructions and provision for cities of refuge. There were six cities that they were to set aside for cities of refuge in which anyone who committed manslaughter, who killed somebody, not premeditatively but accidentally, they could run to, they could flee to the city of refuge and ask to be let in. And they could claim refuge and the elders would protect them until they can get a fair trial The cities of refuge allowed the privilege of not only God's people, but of strangers and of sojourners also to seek protection from punishment, but it was only temporary. These cities, you see, served as a shadow. We've heard a lot about shadows in the book of Hebrews. Well, these cities also served as a shadow of the redemption and of the salvation that was to come through the Redeemer, through Christ himself. It was a shadow of the city of God that Abraham was seeking. Remember back in chapter 11 when, when we're talking about Abraham, when the writer was talking about Abraham, and he said in verse 10, For Abraham, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Talking about how God was preparing for them a place where they would one day have rest, ultimate rest and ultimate refuge. Abraham and the Old Testament saints were seeking something better. They were seeking a better city. They were seeking the city of God. And they were seeking ultimate 
refuge and rest. Now, the Hebrew Christians that we've been studying throughout this book were also seeking refuge. As you remember, we've been talking about this. They've been seeking refuge from the coming persecution. They've been trying to escape this coming persecution. However, some of them were being tempted to reject the actual one who provided the refuge. They were trying to, they were tempted to reject the blessings of Christ in order to find some relief from this temporary persecution, from this temporary physical suffering. Similar, it's not uh, similar to what Esau did in having the firstborn privilege of the covenant, and yet he just blew it off in order to please his temporary desires. They were facing some pretty dangerous threats with this persecution. So it's not something to take lightly. It's not something that we, we understand how they could, could want to be tempted to turn away because this persecution was dangerous. It was deadly. They might die from this. But the author is showing that the greater danger of them is not, it, the, 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 the greater danger for them is forfeiting the eternal inheritance that they have in Christ for the sake of some temporary relief. Some of us are facing threats as well. Some of us are facing difficulty. Some of us are facing persecutions ourselves. Churches all around the world are facing persecutions. Christians around the world, brothers and sisters. As Sam said last week, some of us are hitting that wall of exhaustion to where we're just ready to give up. And perhaps you're seeking refuge. Perhaps you're seeking rest from this exhaustion. For right now, where are you seeking your refuge? Where is your place of rest? What is the place that you're longing for right now? What is the rest that you're longing for? This passage in Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews, as he begins to wrap up his message, and he begins to sort of recap the key points he's been making throughout this book which is really a sermon. This book is really a sermon. And he's telling the Hebrews and he's telling us that our ultimate refuge and our ultimate rest is found in Christ, who is the better mediator of the better covenant. Remember, throughout this book, we're seeing he's contrasting the old with the new, the old with what is better, and talking about how the new covenant far surpasses the benefits of the old covenant, which is now obsolete. So today he reminds us that the followers, as followers of Christ, we've come to a better place of refuge. We have better protection in refuge. And we also can experience a better practice of refuge. We're going to start off in verse 12, verse 18. And what he's doing here is he's contrasting throughout this, throughout this passage here, we're going to see a, uh, a contrast of the old covenant and the new covenant. He says in verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. We read this passage, and in, in, uh, Emily read this in Exodus 19, or at least part of it. 
And this sets up a scene of the old covenant and of, 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 the, of approaching God in the old covenant. The whole pilgrimage, where Israel was going when they left Egypt out of the wilderness, their pilgrimage was on the way to Mount Sinai. And on that way, as you know, they were pretty rebellious. It's the time when, when what's mentioned in Hebrews, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness in Meribah. That was the people of God. That was the people of Israel who was hardening their hearts on the way to Mount Sinai. And when they got to Mount Sinai, they came to a mountain, a physical mountain. And it was not a very friendly place. As you could see, the things that are being described here is something that can't even be touched. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet. That sound of a trumpet is, is, is a loud sound that was, that was, they couldn't even bear the sound of it. And the sound of a trumpet always symbolized the coming of a king. And it was God himself, Yahweh himself, being ready to come down to the people. There was, there was the, the darkness, there was the gloom, there was the tempest, there was the loud trumpet, and then there was a voice that they could not even stand to hear. Think about that. They're coming to the God of the universe, the creator, the one who delivered them, the one they rebelled against, and now they're standing before him, frightened out of their wits. And remember what, what, what God told Moses in Exodus 19, 12, he said, And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Wow. They were going to meet with God, and they couldn't even touch the mountain on which God was standing. This is the holiness of God. This is the wrath of God. This is the, the magnificence of God that that we, we can't really grasp. It's the reality that, that we are all sinners and cannot stand in the presence of God with our sin. It's the reality that God is a holy God. And just like, ex, just like Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah 6, when he stands before the throne of God and see the, sees the Lord high and lifted up and his train fills the temple with glory, and what's Isaiah do? He says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm broken. I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't even be in the presence of this holy God. And the only way he could be in the presence of God was that the seraphim came and brought a coal and touched his lips and cleansed him, and then God sent him. It's understanding the holiness of God. It's understanding the magnificence, the transcendence of God that goes beyond what we can even comprehend. Think about what, how Peter reacted, even with Jesus. When Jesus came and, and, and produced the miracle catch of fish, and what did Peter do? He didn't go and start signing him up to be his, his professional fisherman. He said, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I can't be in your presence. He recognized the fact that he was sinful and Christ was holy. And with that, he could not be in his presence. 
And what the writer is saying here is, in Christ, this is not where you've come. If you want to go back to the old covenant, have at it. But in Christ, this is not where you are. Because not only could they not endure, as it says in verse 20, they could not endure. They could not even bear the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it should be stoned. You know why it should be stoned or, or shot through is, another, is, is uh, what else it says. The reason was you couldn't touch it to kill it. You had to either stone it or stab it through with some, or, or, or shoot it with a javelin. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that even Moses, the mediator of that covenant, said, I tremble with fear. Moses himself was feeling the trembling fear of the presence of the Almighty. He's saying, if you insist on going back to the old covenant, you have no access to God. If you insist on going back to the old covenant, you have no covering. You cannot stand in the presence of God and live. So where are you? If you're not here, where are you if you're in Christ? If you're in Christ, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. What's Mount Zion? Notice the difference. Notice the difference in what he's describing here in the Old Covenant scene where they're coming before the the dark and gloomy and powerful and loud throne of God to where they can't even go near it and if they touch it they die to where they have actually come where have they come you have come to Mount Zion well you see Mount Zion in 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 Revelation 14 1 you also see it in Psalm 2 verse 6 where in Psalm 2 it says I set my king on Zion my holy hill And a revelation is a fulfillment of that. Revelation is showing Mount Zion as the place where the king is, where the Lamb of God resides. This is is a celebration. This is the place of God's eternal throne. And then he says not only to, to Mount Zion, he says to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Again, we're in Revelation. This is looking to the end. This is looking to fulfillment. He's saying, if you're in Christ, you have arrived at the fulfillment, at the promise. What does Revelation 21-2 say? It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, another loud voice. But this one was not one that they couldn't bear. This one is a, is a loud voice that says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Not man stay away at the risk of death, but now the dwelling place of God Almighty is with man. In the city of God, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. No longer in the dark in, in the lightning and the thunder and the fire, but now dwelling with his people in the city of God. That's where you've come if you come to Christ. And even more, into innumerable angels and festal gathering. This is a feast. 
And this is a celebration. And to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven. What's that? And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven that you have, you and Christ have the privileges of the firstborn. That privilege of the firstborn that Esau threw away. In Christ, you have it. You have that privilege and you have that benefit. And it's the assembly of the cloud of witnesses that were, and, and, and all the saints who have gone before us. It's the church triumphant. And if you are in Christ, you are in that church. You are in the assembly of the firstborn, enjoying the benefits of what it is to be God's firstborn. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous, finally made perfect. Remember last, uh, it was a lot, two weeks ago, talked about the, the saints not being made righteous without us. That the church is made perfect, I'm sorry, not being made perfect without us. The church is made perfect together. And these are the righteous saints, the church made perfect. This is a better place it's a celebration of eternal freedom. It's a celebration of eternal redemption and a celebration of eternal life. Do you see the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? Yes, yes, the suffering will be here on earth, but what he's saying is, look what you have in Christ. And even more importantly, look what you lose without him. Because not only do we have a better place, but we have a better, we have a better protection in the refuge. This is a refuge that has ultimate protection because it's a better mediator. Moses was limited. Moses was a man. This is, this is the Son of God as our mediator. Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. These are all the things that you're coming to. He's still going on. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember who said that it, back in chapter 11 that the blood of Abel still speaks. The blood of Abel still speaks. It speaks of justice. It cries out for justice. Why does Jesus' blood speak better? The blood of Jesus brought the justice that Abel's blood was crying out for. The justice fell on Jesus, and now that blood speaks of redeeming unjust sinners. Jesus' blood speaks the word of redemption. It's a better word. It's a better message. You're going to notice speaking. If you look through this passage here, there's a lot of speaking going on. And it goes with the very beginning of this book, because the very beginning of this book opens up with God, how God spoke in old times, through the prophets. But now, in these last days, he speaks through his son. He speaks through his son a better word than the blood of Abel. He speaks through his son the word of redemption, the word of salvation, the word of eternal life. But you may think, how is it that the followers of Christ are already in this Mount Zion, already in this place of the city of God. How are they also get how are we all getting this benefit when we're all sitting here? Paul gives us a little insight into that. This is kind of the already not yet kind of aspect of the gospel here. 
where we have the benefits, but we don't see them fulfilled just yet completely. Paul says this in Ephesians 2. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. Do you see? He raised us up with Christ. And he also seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. While you are here, there is a union with Christ that you possess. If you're in Christ, you possess a relationship with him that unites yourself to him. And where he is, there we are as well. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the work of Christ. This is the work of Christ where God's people who couldn't even touch Mount Sinai when Yahweh was present, where Moses was trembling with fear as the mediator between the people and Yahweh, the work of Christ far surpasses the work of Moses. The work of Christ, the work of the new covenant far surpasses the old covenant. It makes the old covenant obsolete. And if you are in Christ, you are with him. You are safe. You have refuge with him. We've been given access to the very throne of God. Remember, he says back in chapter 4, since we have such a great high priest, let us draw near to the throne of God. You know why we could draw near to the throne of God? Because of the work of Christ. Moses couldn't say that to them on Mount Sinai. He couldn't say just draw near. But Jesus can. Because Jesus did the work. Because Jesus' blood brought in a new covenant, a better and greater covenant. So what's he say here? Yes, this is great news. But he says this in verse 25. He gives us a warning. So he says, see to it. You don't refuse him who's speaking. Again, speaking. The voice of the Lord. Where else did we hear this? We heard this back in chapter 3 and 4. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as they did in Meribah. When you hear the Lord's voice, when you hear the gospel, when you hear the word of the Lord, do not reject it, he's saying. This is a warning. This is a stern warning. For if they didn't escape, he says this, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now, as he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. There's no other name under heaven by which we may be saved the apostles say in Acts. There's no other name. If you reject this name, there is no salvation under heaven. Although the Hebrew Christians may want to go back to the old covenant, there really is no old covenant to go back to because it's now obsolete. The only path forward is through Christ. And that path may lead to suffering. But what he's saying is there is something greater because you're already connected to the Lord seated at the throne of grace and mercy with the Father in heaven. 
Makes me think of the hymn, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. There is nothing else. There is nothing else. And he's saying, do not reject his voice. If you know the gospel, if you know the word of the Lord, the Lord is calling you to himself. Do not reject his voice. Do not reject him. There is nothing else. There is no other way. And finally, he gives us a better practice of refuge. Since we have, since we have a better place of refuge and since we have a better, oh my goodness, a better protection in this refuge, it leaves us with a better practice of refuge. How do we practice this refuge? How do we live in this refuge now that we have this refuge in Christ? Very simple. He says, therefore, let us be grateful. Let us live a life of thanksgiving. Let us live a life understanding what Jesus has done for us, bringing us into the very presence of the living God, making us citizens of the city of God, citizens of heaven, as Paul says. What more can we do but be thankful for that? We've played no role. We've done nothing to do that. It is all the work of Christ, and so we are grateful to Christ. And why? Because we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You see, the things that we haven't come to, we haven't come to this mountain which was shaken, all the things that were created. If we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, then you know what that means? It means that we too cannot be shaken if you are in Christ. You might not feel like that. You might feel very shaken today. But what he's calling us to is to recognize the benefit that we have in Christ. You may feel shaken, but the promise is that you are not shakable in Christ. I am not shakable in Christ. That's why he's calling us by faith to receive this. And he says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and with awe. Remembering that the God that was on Sinai, the God whom they could not approach without the risk of death, he hasn't changed. He's still the holy, awesome, just God, creator of the universe. He's not changed. John pointed this out when he read it. This passage starts with fire and it ends with fire. Why do we offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe? Because our God is a consuming fire. He's a consuming fire. The beautiful thing is that the mediator we have is the one who took the punishment of that fire who took it all so that we may be in God's presence, so that we may go with him, so that we may be raised up with him, as Paul said, and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. What's so difficult for us is that this greater thing that is described is something that we can't see. It's something that is uh, to come. It's not that it's not real. It's just we haven't realized it yet. 
It's the hard thing. We want things that we can handle, that we can touch, that we can smell, that we can experience with our senses. We want to see it in front of us. And it's hard to look. It's hard to, to move forward to that which we cannot see. That's why chapter 11 is there. Because it's by faith. It's by faith that the Old Testament saints were moving on to something they couldn't even see with a Savior they didn't even meet yet. They had no idea how God was going to do this, but it was by faith. And it's by faith that the Lord is calling us to grasp onto the promises that he's given us as well. The definition of refuge is a condition of being safe or sheltered from pursuit from danger or from trouble. It's one, one definition I saw. It's a condition of being safe or sheltered from pursuit, danger, or trouble. You want refuge? You want rest? What the author is telling us here this morning is that Jesus provides all of those things. The work of Christ provides all of those things. He's calling on us to take hold of those things by faith, believing that he has achieved those things for us, that he has been able, through the work on the cross, through his resurrection from the dead, victory over death, he has been able to secure those things, not only for himself, but for all of those who call upon his name. What does refuge look like? What does this refuge, this safety look like? Well, let me close with this passage out of Revelation 20, 21 and 22. 21, 3 and 4 says, He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with, him, with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. No war. For the former things have passed away. He goes on. Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's healing. No longer will there be anything accursed. Think about the accursed things, the things that you think of as a, that are accursed, that have ruined others' lives. Think about those things because in the city of God, there will no longer be anything that is accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. And they'll see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, let's encourage one another to hold on. 
Let's encourage one another to endure, to persevere on the pilgrimage that God has set us on through Christ. Yes, there's going to be hard times here. Yes, there's going to be suffering. But may we hold on to the promise that is for us who are in Christ. And may we encourage one another to do so as well. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for this promise. It's hard to believe it sometimes, and it's hard to hold on. Help us as your people. Give us endurance, and give us a faith that will hold on through all turmoil and trouble. It's in Christ's name, amen.